0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast, my name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm sitting here with my colleagues Mark Pringle, Hi Barney, and Jasper Mirison Bowie, Hello Barney, or Bowie as you always say, Barney. Which I didn't, <laughs> I said Bowie, I made a, really <laughs> I made so a point of saying Bowie. Uh, <laughs> welcome both of you, lovely to be sitting here for our last episode of the year, in fact our last episode until I think probably the 10th or 11th of January, isn't it, so Savour every last second of this episode. <laughs> last time we were sitting here, it was election day. So we're all reeling and yeah. bruised. That from... went well, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We won't talk about that, but just to acknowledge it, we are going to talk about everything that's new on Roxback Pages this week, including three pieces about Aretha Franklin, three pieces by the featured writer Tom Cox, an audio interview with Mark Ronson, DJ, superstar, producer, et cetera, and artist, and all library highlights, we'll start with Aretha. Um, And for for just the simple reason that the film Amazing Grace, I think is being widely acknowledged as the best music documentary of the year. This is an extraordinary film. Yeah. And, Mark, you've seen it. Yep. I've seen it too, actually, but... Me too. <laughs> yeah, we've all seen it. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! hurrah, hurrah. Actually, I've seen most of it. I but, Mark, I think it, you but- saw it before Jasper and I saw it. Just describe the impact that it had. Well, from- I mean, first of
1: all, the
2: album I bought when it came out back in 72. And I always loved. It's absolutely one of my favourite original. Tell us exactly what drum. it is. Basically, it's her returning to her roots as a gospel singer in a church... In Los Angeles. Yes, South Central. uh, Which is actually a converted cinema, which is a kind of classic ghetto church... And it was actually set up to be recorded and to be filmed. Remind me the name of Sidney Pollack. Sydney Pollack. It was hard to film the
0: event. Well, um, actually, he wasn't hired to film He rather inserted himself into it. That's right. Yeah. It. yeah, that's right. There was
1: someone else who was much more experienced with music docs
2: would who have, have done, done a much it. better job. Yeah. And
0: thereby hangs a tale. Thereby
2: hangs a tale, which we'll go into a mm. little later. As I said, I always loved, loved the album. I knew that it had been filmed, that story had been circulating f- for a long time. And I'd heard that because they couldn't sync the sound to the pictures that it was useless, and there were all kinds of other issues around it. But as a film, finally it got stitched together, all kinds of stuff. Essentially, they had to wait till Aretha died before beginning to release it. Her caution, partly apparently she was demanding a lot of money, but I also feel, looking at the film, is that she saw an aspect of herself and her family that she was uncomfortable looking at. Which is the way, one of the really striking things is that her father, his girlfriend, Clara Ward, the great gospel singer, and someone who I think is her brother, come in the, the second evening, this is right. the it's of the Two, two nights, comes, they come marching down through the church and kind of lapping up the attention on them. And they sit right in front. And they're constantly giving each other high fives and all sort of stuff, and you can see Aretha sort of slightly shrink inside herself. You know, I mean, she's in those days she wasn't the most outgoing person anyway. But the music is amazing. Again, a fault of the, the director is that there are very few shots of the band, and the bands are exceptional. Bernard Purdy on drums, Cornel Dupree, Dupree on drums. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a fantastic band. Mm.
0: Uh, and half of uh, James Cleveland's
2: choir. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the choir you see quite a lot of, partly because the, the, the choir master is the most flamboyant person oh, on the brilliant. stage. brilliant. <laughs> it's so brilliant. He's sort of like, yeah. It is absolutely extraordinary, and the, the music is terrific. Aretha sings... When she's singing, she's right there. Mm. Mm. And the moment she closes, stops singing, she sort of retreats. And it's, it's a very interesting process. There's one moment when she's sitting at the piano, was it Never Grow Old, that she, she's playing? Yes. Yes, because yeah, you don't see a lot of her at the piano no. when uh, she first
0: comes on. That, that's right. Basically,
2: James it. Cleveland, who actually sort of taught her as a child to play piano. In Detroit, uh, uh, in, in, Detroit. In, in
0: her father's it, church. That's
2: That's right. He's playing the piano, most of all, but she's in the piano. She's playing, she's starting to play this number. And her father comes up with a handkerchief, starts mopping her brow, and it's the most invasive and intrusive act you can imagine. He's showing off. Mm. You know, this is my daughter. Yes. You know, I kind of own her. Yes. Uh, and I may be reading far too much into it, but having heard about the, how difficult their relationship was in many respects and everything, I couldn't help but read some of the stuff into what I was seeing. The music is
1: just fantastic, hair-raisingly spine chillingly Yeah,
0: she she is extraordinary, yeah, isn't she? I... <STingen> I... Hm. Ah, I... I mean, I I saw a screening of it about um, five weeks. Oh, this or is so interesting. Ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a... Joe Boyd, the, the 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 legendary Joe Boyd, you know, who has <laughs> had fingers in so many. Zelig. Joe Zelig so Boyd. Of, yeah. I mean, more more than a Zelig, but there is a Zelig-like yeah. quality to his. Popping up all over the place, and he was one of the producers because he was working at Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers were interested in in bringing movies and music together. So, he arranged a screening in the Charlotte Street Hotel here in London, as I say, about five or six weeks ago. And I'm just so glad that I saw it with a you know, serious sound system. Yeah, 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 yeah. and, and I was just so struck. I hadn't been expecting Aretha to be quite so. I don't know. As you say, so sort of shrinking into herself. Mm-hmm. She's quite she's, timid. Yeah, she's the, the opposite of a diva in this mm. in this context. Yeah. And uh, Joe made the point in the Q and A that happened afterwards that you know it was a recording session. Yes. And I actually asked, well, in that case, why was it filmed? You know, if she's so focused and, of course, also shy and complex, mm-hmm. troubled soul. You know, why? Why? Why film it, mm-hmm. you know? And he said, well, because she wanted to be a movie star. And I, and I sort of that's, thought, well, that's, that's, that's not a woman who wants to be a movie star. But I mean, she
1: had a deal with Warners for the film. And so, you know, there was she obviously wanted to make something on that front of it, or she wouldn't have made the deal for the film at all, presumably.
0: Well, it's just interesting, to because so in Mick Brown's piece for The Telegraph earlier this year, when when the film was first shown... Mm-hmm. He talks about the fact that Diana Ross had been in Lady Sings the Blues, right? Also, Barbara Streisand had been in in Sydney Pollack's film The Way We Were, yeah, yeah. And and Joe seemed to really intimate that Aretha was quite taken with the idea of being a movie star. She wanted to be a movie star, but it doesn't really gel no. with the experience you have watching no, the film. And, and
1: also, it's not that kind of movie. But I mean, I wonder. I did find it interesting while watching it that you get this. And I think one of the reasons why the film is so special Mm -hmm. and so beautiful is that it's actually much more of a document of an event that happened rather than it is a film. It's Because it's been made so many years in post, it's been cut together so many years in post, you get to see what happened, warts and all, in a way Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have done if it had been released at the time. I think that's right. I mean, yes,
2: it was a recording session and, what as I, I believe... Joe Boyd said, was that there were lots of gaps between takes as they sort of listened back and all that sort of stuff was going on. And it's got an audience there, yeah. including kind of like yeah. the back cover, of a couple of Rolling Stones. Mick and Jagger
0: <laughs> and Charlie Watts. Yeah. Some of my
1: favourite scenes are actually of random audience members going, stop yes. filming, yeah. or like just like smiling yeah. and yeah. laughing. and yeah. Yeah. There's that, that, great. That, Those two
2: girls who come down the front dancing towards the end are just electrifying. That's really someone getting happy in the,
0: in the gospel Absolutely. church. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, Completely. Um, yeah, the audience is as important as anything. Yeah, but you're right that Joe again made the point in the Q and A. So what you've just experienced as powerful it was obviously wasn't like yeah what wasn't what happened. It wasn't. It wasn't actually yeah. the event as as I yeah. witnessed it. You see Joe at the beginning of the film yeah. was long, long hair. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> no, but you know, given
2: all of that. It, it's possibly the best music movie I've ever seen. I mean, that's partly coloured by the fact that I adore Rita Franklin mm. and have all my mm. life, pretty much. Yes. But it, it just has this extraordinary quality of of her as a personality. Mm. As I say, that's like the slightly complicated stuff with her and her father and so on and so forth. How she doesn't really interact with the audience, but she is singing with and to them in this incredibly powerful way. The choir are fantastic, the band are fantastic... It's just all. It's kind of all there. Well,
0: it's. I mean, it's, as Jasper uh, intimates, you know, it's it's fabulously unpolished, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you were to make a film like that now, you can just. It, um, it would be so fake. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and it's so not fake. Yeah. This film. The singing is just. It, it is hair raising. I'm
2: highly amused by the fact that the choir sat down, pretty much throughout. Yes. I was expecting them to be standing on their feet. Not a bit of it. They're all sat there. Belting out yeah. this glorious kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. church,
0: aren't and, and, and in and in sort of homemade outfits, <laughs> and, and the church is a
2: crappy
0: old yes, see, church. The old There's cinema. nothing glamorous. You, you can yeah. see,
2: you can see the window, of the projection booth, on the back wall. I yeah. mean, it it's it, it, it's hilarious. It you know? is, but that that in itself is interesting because um, if you spend any time in the black parts of American cities, you see churches just like that everywhere. Storefront churches. Factory building churches, you know, wherever there's a space to put a church, people mm. will put a church. You, you, you don't actually get many purpose built churches in a lot of these no, cities. No, you know, no. I mean, in Chicago and in Southside, you know, you know, we, I remember when I went on a tour of the South Side a couple about
0: three years ago, I saw one obviously purpose built church, but everything else was mm. a repurposed mm. building. So Jerry Waxler, who signed her to Atlantic, and whose idea yeah. this going back to your Gospel Roots album it was described to her as memorably as our lady of mysterious sorrows. Yes. And I felt that very intensely watching this film. I mean, you talked uh, earlier Mark about the entrance, mm-hmm. the, the reverend CL and Clara Woodman, you see not, you don't see her kind of flinching, but you kind of get this sense of like, you know, it's daddy's little girl, but an unhappy little girl yeah. there, you know, and, and Mick, makes the point in his piece that Clara Ward was the woman who bust up her parents' marriage. Is that right? She was only six when C.L. Franklin went off with Clara Ward. Uh-huh. And here they are coming yeah, yeah, in. Yeah, you know, yeah. all, all of these subtexts yeah, and backstories yeah. yeah, going that, on. I mean, that, that I just know that that's really And, of course, you know, all sorts of rumours that we can't really go into here about her relationship with her father. Yeah. But there's there's a, there's a sort of shadow that hangs over this film. Yeah. And um, these performances. And it is an ex- it's yeah. an extraordinary thing. I mean,
2: thing. It, you know, in a sense, in this film, the only moment she's free is when she's singing. Yes. The, yes. That's her moment of freedom. Yes.
0: Yeah, because she was a, tr- she was and a she's, very she's troubled, troubled somewhere soul. She's
2: somewhere else when she's singing yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Very much.
0: She, she really is. And This is
2: also around time when her relationship with Jerry Wexler was getting to a fairly bad place. I think there's always been an uneasy relationship with Jerry Wexler, partly because of the way they both are and their, their huge differences. Her relationship with Atlantic Records. It grounds on for a few more years, but yeah. but 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 it was it was this is possibly the last really great thing she did in Atlantic.
0: And many people would agree there where there were isolated moments of yeah. greatness. But this you could argue, and many have that this is her sort of peak yeah. vocal moment. Mm-hmm. It, it, the singing never gets quite so intensely yeah. magnificent.
2: It's interesting, the cover of the album. She's very Afrocentric. She's wearing a sort of dashiki yep. and so on and so forth. And you know, it's it's of that moment in kind of black cultural history where there was a sort of, there was a move towards Afrocentrism, which was. Many years later, she made a, a very indifferent gospel album: "One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism." Correct which for Clive was, Davis. Yes, which is just does even get. Close. No. I don't think I've even heard it. Yeah, it's you know it's really not very good. I mean, it's also. i mean by that point, Maurice's voice was a very different animal. She chain-smoked her way through her entire career, and by the, yeah. by the time she hit the, the, the late eighties, nineties, she had lost nearly all of her. Kind of yeah, top, it's much breathier,
0: end. isn't it? It's, by, it's, a, it's a deeper the, sort of thing. And let's not forget, as you rightly said, Mark. You know, the album itself, this double album, is is is, is, is worth. Having anyway, regardless of the film, and the the reason the
1: film even got made to begin with is because the producer was obsessed with the album, and then heard that this footage existed, and then went out looking for it. That's
2: right. Yeah, and and Mick tells
1: circularity in that
2: exactly. He's lost his shirt doing it, hasn't he? He has.
0: You know, I mean, Joe alluded to this that he it it was such a labour of love. It went on for so many years. You know, remortgaged the house two or three times. The guy's never going to make his money back. And I mean, it's really dismaying to read about the sort of lawsuit that Aretha brought against him. I mean, you know, he was just like a fan yeah. who I think was working at Warner Brothers. And I mean, look, fantastic that the films available, but again, you know, all the backstories yes. are, are quite are quite troubling. We're, so we're also running Ian MacDonald's contemporary review of the Amazing Grace album, and he's he's just absolutely raving about it. Yeah. One of the most dynamically moving records I've ever heard. He says, ironically, Warner Brothers have filmed it, and if listening to this ecstatic 77 minutes isn't enough to get you queuing outside your local flea pit right now, brother, you're <laughs> either deaf or you're dead. Well, well some <laughs>
2: of the people reading that
0: are dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the last of the three pieces, that. Attained to Amazing Grace is essentially an interview with the Reverend James Cleveland, right. who's obviously he's almost like the chief supporting actor, in yes, this, isn't he? He clearly. Wants to be filmed the loss in this film, and he's always jumping up and down and he's singing his piano and so gives, sense, gives all these of mini speeches. Yes. He yeah, but yes. in a sense, he's doing what he would do every Sunday in the church where he'd be leaving the choir and so, and so on and so yep, forth. Absolutely. You know, that
2: is what he does. You know. Yeah.
0: And he was the king of sort of contemporary oh, yeah. gospel. Oh, he, I saw him play once at the you. Albert Hall. I'm trying to remember whether I saw him. Was it the same night that Al Green played there, in 1985? Wow. Or was it Cleveland headlining on his own? I mean, I I can't say that I was a huge fan of Mm. James Cleveland's gospel records. Apart from anything else, he wasn't a great singer.
2: I love his piano playing. Yeah, he was a great piano player. You know, he's one of the great... Black American pianist. Yeah. You know? If he'd worked in other fields, like if he worked in rock and roll and, and in kind of soul music, he'd have been a great soul yeah. pianist. Yeah, know? yeah. And in a way, I mean, the fact that he taught Aretha, when you hear Aretha, you're hear, it's sort of hearing a bit of James Cleveland in there, and mm. she is, I think, a great R&B piano player, not just a good R&B piano well,
0: player. Well, he says to one. John Abbey in this Blues and Soul piece from December 72... Yeah, he said, I used to teach her chords, and that teaching is, I suppose, the basis of her musical style even today. Uh-huh. I think that's, yeah. that's not just boasting. I agree. Um, and, and we were talking take, about it
1: the other day, sort of saying that actually some of her best singing is done what, she when she plays the piano. Yeah. And I oh, think that
0: relationship between yeah, her absolutely. voice and her piano. It's a bit like Nina Simone yeah. to me. Yeah. It's the, like When she first sat down in Muscle Shoals, and play Grand Piano yeah, yeah. on I Never left That's up right. You know, well, that's
2: when Spooner... And Spooner then comes yeah. in on the electric Well, well that was Spooner oh. was meant to be playing piano on that. He goes up to Jerry and okay, saying, what, I'm not playing piano on this session. Yeah, yeah, you know? Whoa. Fair play. Later on, I mean, she, she pretty much stopped playing piano for years. I mean, like Keith Richards dragged her back in when he produced a track, couple of tracks for her. Got to do it again. But she has also kind of very heavy smoker. And Randy Jackson's bass player I work with, Yeah, he, he's on Who's Zooming Who and all those albums. And he said she'd go into the vocal booth with a cigarette and basically take a long drag and sing while exhaling take another drag and sing the next line she was basically smoking and probably singing probably menthol cigarettes uh, uh, and said the, the vocal booth you couldn't see her in the end just like just a cloud of smoke in there you know
0: anyway anyway it, it's Quite a neat link to the other free stuff on the homepage this this week. Well, it's going to be free stuff for a while, possibly. (laughs) We're featuring the writer Tom Cox, who we'll talk about in a moment. But just to say the first piece is a piece about Aretha. It's actually a conversation with Jerry Wexler. I'm assuming a phone interview with Jerry. This was for The Guardian in 1999 when he was... Tom was briefly the chief rock critic yeah. before Alexis Petridis took over. So it's really just talking to Jerry about when Aretha first came to Muscle Shoals. We, we often talk about Muscle Shoals <laughs> on the podcast for obvious reasons, but it's, it's, it's just an interesting little piece with some interesting Wexler quotes. Yeah. He, he really goes into, I didn't know this until I read this piece, about the phone call that Jerry got. He was actually at Muscle Shoals yeah, yeah. when he got a phone call. Yeah, yeah. From a gospel DJ called Louise Bishop, calling from Philadelphia, saying that Aretha wanted to arrange a meeting with him, wow. and he was in the studio with Wilson Pickett, and he had just basically tried to break up a fist fight between Wilson Pickett and Percy Sledge. What? I mean, this is this is a kind of footnote. <laughs> it's an aside, but I read it and my eyes popped out of my That's head. Fantastic. Apparently, Wilson was accusing Percy. Percy provoked Wilson by suggesting that he was borrowing or nicking licks from Pickett's arch enemy, James Brown and Pickett went for well, him. Well,
2: per- Pickett had a short fuse,
0: was a Oh, a very short fuse. So, but he was a prickly individual, yeah. wicked Pickett, you know, I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and you'd think Percy Sledge would have known that. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was sort of intentionally riling him up.
2: But, but the thing is, Percy Sledge is one of those benign-appearing
0: individuals, you can precisely. imagine. Precisely, precisely. So, but anyway, to get, <laughs> to, great. The, to, get to the... Yeah, little I know. <laughs> Love the bill, the vignette. It's a nice little aside, but so essentially, Tom is asking Jerry about, you know, what happened happened that night in Muscle Shoals. She goes there, you know, he says, I want to record you in the south. Yeah. I want to take you to this funky little studio in Muscle Shoals. And they, and of course, you, you, you know this story that Aretha walks in with her abusive husband, Ted White, yeah. and it's a room full of honkies. It's a room full of white when, in Red fact, necks, um, when Rick Hall,
2: whose studio and who was kind of sort of co-producing... The Fame studio. ...had been asked to provide some
0: black musicians and he failed to do so. That, I think that's right. Or, or at least someone got the blame for not putting any other black... I mean, there weren't a lot of black musicians playing but sessions there were horn in players. the area of the, the, the horn, horn, black players. Play, horn so players. Players. So that's So, you know, they record I Never Loved a Man and yeah. it's her first million seller and it redefines Aretha and it redefines Salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they only get a quarter That's right. of Do Right Man, which, Do Right Woman, Do Right is, Woman, which, Do Right Man. Which
2: has been written by Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham up in the, the office whilst they were the first track was going down. <laughs> yeah. And they, they came down with this thing, and Dan had to sort of sing a, a scratch vocal, a demo vocal. This white boy was singing his demo vocal to read Franklin. Yeah. And at some point in this, one of the Whitehall players pinches Aretha's arse. Yeah, um, they'd all been so Jeez. pleased with the first track they'd recorded that Ted White and Rick Hall hit the bottle, and as they're, they're drinking heavily, they get into a, a fight. Mm. Aretha leaves; she goes back to her hotel, or well, motel. She, she, she Motel. Yeah. Then Wexler's in his motel. Mm. Gets a phone call at four in the morning from Reese's at a gas station saying, I've got to get out of this place. Right. And they go back to New York, I'd guess. And Wexler then brings the rhythm section without letting Rick Hall know, because they were Rick Hall's rhythm section, brings the band up to New York to record more stuff and, uh, and finish well, off. Finish up,
0: do right, do, do right, right. woman.
2: And they were staggered because they'd never seen an eight track recorder before. Mm. And what they thought was a piece of shit. Was suddenly this fabulous song mm. that had been done in, in the meantime, mm. and then from then on, for a good three, four years, those musicians would go up to New York and, and record a piece of stuff in New York, Atlantic Studios. Yeah,
0: there. I mean, it is—it's one of the sort of defining moments of soul music, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I always think it is tragic in many ways that that, that happened in Muscle Shoals because the idea of Aretha recording you know an entire album or yeah. more than more than one album there would have would have would have just been well heaven. Yeah really. but then she I mean, made
2: fabulous records in New York but with those musicians. A, a, and
0: also down down in Florida. That because, so so yeah. she she did do an album or two down at Criteria Studios right. again with a with a white band of Dixie that's, Flyers. That's right. And so that that kind of coming yeah. together we, Wexler's idea of with bringing black voices and, and often white musicians mm. together in the South, it it was it was something that he, you know, obviously meant a lot to him. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I think that's and right. And the
0: country elements yeah. that went. I mean, do right, do right, woman. Yeah. I mean, it's a country yeah.
2: song. So, I mean, some artists slotted into that perfectly. Wilson Pickett. Famously says, when he first flew to Muscle Shoals, he looked out the plane window and people were picking cotton below. And he White thought, people gee, were picking cotton. Get me out of here. I, I'm going back, get me out of here. But actually, he settled in brilliantly. Yeah. Bobby Womack settled in brilliantly. You know, mm. A lot of them did. And then, of course, you had the stacks to Muscle Shoals crossover. People like the Staple singers who would start out in stacks but would end up recording at Muscle Shoals mm. and so on and so forth. It was fabulous, and it, by 69, it was all falling to pieces. Mm. You know, it,
0: it was, it was a yeah. three, four years. Yeah, I mean, and we have talked about Southern Soul yeah. on the podcast again, so we, we won't talk much yeah. more about it, but just to say, really, to wrap this up by saying that Amazing Grace, is, if you if you remain unconvinced by all the claims made for Aretha Franklin's genius, or you just simply don't know that much about her, do try to yeah. see the Amazing Grace film. <gasps> may mm-hmm. So, just briefly on Tom Cox. hes a, such a good writer. By he's a, way. such a funny writer, yeah. And we've had him on RBP for quite a long time. He no longer does journalism; he's essentially reinvented himself as as an author. He's moved to—he's been living in Norfolk for many years, and he writes very funny books about the countryside. Well, and I mean, cats he also—he he wrote, <laughs> wrote a brilliant
2: book about a sport I despise about golf called Nice Jumper, and it's really worth. reading. And another very even <laughs> an, an
0: even better title: Bring Me the the head of Sergio Garcia, <laughs> <laughs> and he's written a book about, about cats called The Good, the Bad, and the Furry. He's nothing if not a creator of great titles,
2: but a dyna- dynamite music writer.
0: A dynamite music writer, and and so in addition to that Wexler piece, there's a piece from the Daily Telegraph, May 2004, about Garage Band. Essentially, Garage Band has just been. Introduced by Apple to uh, so say
2: that that's recording
0: software, multi-track recording and, software, and a
1: sort of entry-level
0: multi-track yes.
2: recording yeah. software
1: that came pre-installed on uh, every new absolutely, Mac that buy and it was it. and until they mucked it up
0: in recent years, it was fabulous. It was really, really good. Well, so he 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 puts this in context says there must be quite a few others like me out there mostly men around the age of 30 who've accepted that they're never going to play the guitar but haven't yet come to terms with every implication of this such as the fact that they'll never get to jam with Joe Perry from Aerosmith <laughs> <laughs> this, this I suppose is why those ingenious folks at Apple Mac have invented GarageBand so he then sets to work making tracks on GarageBand and he creates one and his wife overhears this from the kitchen and comes storming in <laughs> My wife arrives to see what all the fuss is about. What's this, she asks me. It's my new song, Norman's Haitian Love Buzz, I reply. (laughs) She goes, sounds like Nine Inch Nails murdering the human league on a farm while Johnny Cash watches. And it's horribly clean sounding as well. Real soulless session muso stuff. I might have expected this from my wife, who's a bit snobby about this kind of thing. (laughs) So very down as well.
1: Brilliant, yeah.
2: brilliant. Oh, it's it's it's, it's, it's great. No, I, I'm I'm way before Rocks Back Pages as a Tom Cox fan. I me was too. always look for. He actually, I went to see a band, The Mighty Imperials, on the basis of his write up of seeing The Mighty Imperials. You oh, know? There we go. There you you go. know, I mean, which, which is on cynically like me is. Pretty rare That's event. That's
0: great. And so, well, so the last piece actually talked about how he came to be a music writer. And and it, it is also incredibly funny. He essentially, he had a fanzine called Words I Might Have Ate. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. It's a sort of lo-fi <laughs> indie rock fanzine. And he would send them copies of it to the, the enemy and the melody maker in vain hopes that some editor there would read them. And And, in fact, it did happen. Because I think he thinks because he... He'd given her a rave review to a new Afghan Whigs album. Ted Kessler, who was a huge Whigs fan, actually did read this and got in touch and his dad says, "Some bloke called Ted from the enemy wants to know if you want to work for them." so he, he ends up reviewing for the enemy and then becomes the guy as we formerly mentioned, he becomes the chief. Music writer for The Guardian. Yeah. And it's also a piece about one of his favorite bands, the Canadian sort of neo power pop band Sloan, and his love affair with them. Yeah. So that's the free stuff. That's it's what's amazing free. grace. It's free. And that's what's free. Check it out. <laughs> Check it out. Tom Cox, Aretha Franklin, and here's what's not free.
2: Yeah, well, we're going to start with our audio interview, which is one of these marvellous things where Maureen Payton drives someone around in a cab. Um, is this a routine? is a regular thing she did, I think, for The Mail on Sunday. In this case, it's Mark Ronson, DJ-turned-record producer, uh, stepson of Foreigner's Mick Jones. I mean, you know, first of all, let's briefly talk about Mark Ronson. I mean, that he's someone I'm very ambivalent about in that he He, co-produced, he tends to claim that he produced... Back to Black, the Amy Winehouse album. In fact, there was another producer involved. He may have mixed the whole album. I think that's possible. But he did a pretty fantastic job. But it's the artist first, and particularly Amy who wrote her own stuff, you know. And to his Uh, credit, he does
0: sort of say that. Yeah, he does, but but he
2: has subsequently rather I think rather Salam Remy has got a bit of a that's the man... He's been
0: sidelined a little you, bit. You,
2: you know, and Mark has rather sort of, kind of like lived off this for a bit. Which isn't to say he's an, he's an untalented producer. He's a talented producer. With, without a doubt. Anyway, they're driving around his childhood roots, London roots, none of which you can really remember. <laughs> First of all, Maureen comments on his mid-Atlantic accent, and he's actually very
1: amusing about it. It's like yeah. self-deprecating. Is I really it, like that. He sort of says that he's worried about getting... Caught out on either side yes.
2: of it, and, and talk about how you know he'd be with his friends at school, and then he'd ring his mum, and suddenly he'd drop into a perfectly English accent, and yeah. all his school friends yeah. start mocking him, you know. <laughs> and then you know she asks about his father, his blood father's business, and he, it sounds like his blood father's a bit of a wide boy, sort of dabbling in this and that. And then he can't find his school. And He rings his dad yeah. in
1: the middle of this interview. Where was my school again?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Then he sort of talks about then when his mother remarried and he grew up in this rock and roll milieu in New York. I talks about being tucked in bed by Robin Williamsville people. I mean, it's, 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 it's very good. Well, should we hear? Well, I, well and then he talks about how going on tour with Foreigner.
0: And yeah, in at,
2: the states. In the states, and how the headmistress of this school went on the tour with as him a sort of chaperone. as a sort of chaperone. <laughs>
3: My mother was still quite like strict and wanted us to be mm. like not just think cause we were on tour or a band that we were gonna like. This is your twin sister, yeah. Me and my twin sister. So she brought this woman who was the headmistress of the whole junior school on tour, with us with a foreigner in the in the states, to make sure that like we would we were like still on our best behaviour or whatever else it was. Wow, that must have been exciting for the headmistress. I think so. It was also weird because in school you're not supposed to be cool with the headmistress. So like, I remember coming back after that, someone pretending that nothing ever happened. It's like almost like when you like sleep with someone in the workplace and like you both have to pretend like the next day that like nothing ever happened. Like that was the thing. Like, when we get back to school, it's back to the same dynamic, okay? I don't like you, you don't like me.
1: Yeah, it's not look her in the eye, yeah. You're as cold as ice. You're willing
2: to
0: sacrifice our love. At no, well, least he didn't sleep with his
2: I he? <laughs> <laughs> He's too young, Barney. Um, Barney. But, but really, yellow card. He he talks also about how he is always looking to the past, for his, the, the music that
1: he loves and the way he wants to produce it's very records. very much borne out by the records he's produced even in the in the years since Back and, to Black. I mean, uh, Uptown Funk yes. with Bruno Mars is just yeah. just a straight... You know, 80s funk and. I think that's, soul. A, that, that's absolutely and right. Soul. I think he
2: has the nostalgia towards the past that a lot of people of his generation have. A past that they didn't actually live through. I mean, he he may have heard these records as, as, as a child, you know, but he loves the quality of the sound of those sorts of recordings and so on so <laughs> forth. We'll play a clip later on talking about producing Amy Winehouse specifically and about how she was a tough, determined person who had had fixed ideas, you know, this is right, this is wrong... And he talks about also being a DJ. He did his birthday party, Tom Cruise's wedding, you know, which is actually all pretty amusing. His friendship with Sean Lennon. Mm. He's quite engaging, isn't he, Barney? Have you listen to. I him?
0: mean, look, I'm I am a fan, slightly reluctantly. I listened <laughs> to the interview, and I sort of thought, what I always think about him is he's a bit of a fraud, <laughs> and but also what I I always sort of feel he, he's. Like a lot of people who've had privileged backgrounds yeah. in music, there's, there's there's guilt about that. There's awkwardness around that. I actually, I just he's quite defensive.
2: He's quite defensive about
0: that. I he? didn't buy. I'm afraid the, the the idea that he didn't remember where his school was because it was a posh private school, the Hall School in Belsize Park. Yeah,
1: he's quite funny about that. Very near the beginning, he, I was yeah. not convinced,
0: and he, and he couldn't sort remember of what sort of ribs him a bit about. Yeah, and not remembering which house he'd lived in on Circus Circus Road or whatever. In yeah. B- this is a very posh part of it's like St John's Wood, yeah. Belsize part. A lot of rich yeah. Jewish families. He came from a very he came from a rich Jewish family. His his uncle was Gerald Ronson. Is that right? You know, so this was, there was a lot of wealth there. Yeah, and, yeah. and what I kind of felt listening to him was he was he was trying to cut kind it of down. But I don't remember where yeah. the school is. Yeah. I think I lived there. It's yeah. like you remember everything. No one forgets where this school no, so, is.
2: So, absolutely not. You know, I, so I, I, I you know. I, the one nice thing though about that was that he says that now he's in London a lot because he works out of London as much as he does out in America is he's seeing his birth father a lot more has developed really nice relationships with his his half brothers mm. and sisters mm. that from that so that that was nice yeah, I, I think he, you get the feeling that he's terrified he's gonna be found out at any moment.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and actually do you know what? I think his work up to so this is twenty oh seven, the year that Back to Black came out, and of course the year that his second solo album version that's right. comes out. So that's what it's promoting. Yeah. I think his work really stands up. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's nothing to be apologetic no. about. I think he's done really, really good work, including up to this year. I don't think Late Night Feelings, the album that came out this year, is, is, is altogether brilliant. But there's some great moments on it. There's a great track with Alicia Keys. Uh-huh. And I really loved the, the track that he did with, uh, with... He created an act called Silk City and had Dua Lipa singing on yeah. him, this track, yes. Electricity, that came out late last year. I, just, yeah. I thought I it was tremendous. His,
1: his track with Miley Cyrus yep. on Late Night Feelings is pretty good because it sort of goes back to slightly country-ish, it's actually a very country-sounding song. Yeah. Yes. And it, again, he's sort of looking to to pasts of varying yeah. forms, and I think he does that very well. And, but he transposes the, sort of that into electro-pop mm. world that he inhabits. Absolutely. I mean, you, Absolutely. Say, you say
2: the electro-pop world inhabits, but in a sense he's also... At the same time as the whole alt-americana sort of stuff was happening, he was part of a large movement of musicians... Back to things like recording bands live in the room and all of that sort of stuff, Um, which I
0: approve of. But it wasn't slavishly uh, nostalgic, you see. I think what was so striking about Back to Black was that it it used those idioms. But also hip-hop's in there. But hip-hop's in there and Amy's own kind of jazz inflections and the the way she writes. To me, it, it... It was the best of both worlds, incredible horn arrangements, but it didn't feel like some sort of pastiche, sax motel review. I
2: mean, it's it's interesting, he he talked about how she was already sort of started to be hounded by the press, even as early as that. He must have then witnessed the awful stuff that happened to her subsequently. I mean, he was was trying to make another record with her, and she just was never in the studio. And uh, Mm. that awful album of outtakes that... Basically, outtakes was put out by a label. Apart
0: from Between the Cheats, which which is 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 just
2: fantastic. But the rest of it was the worst barrel-scraping exercise you can imagine. Yeah, and a
0: really not very good version of one of our favourite songs, um, the Leon Russell song that Donny Hathaway made her own. Oh, yes, She she was a massive Donny Hathaway fan. Song for you. I mean, even if he does take more credit than he should have for for Bax, but I do think you know, the sound that he got on that record was fantastic. For me, it's one of the great
2: records that's come out of this country in the last 20 years. And, you know,
0: okay, so you know, you hear him talking in this interview and it is very like record collection rock. It's all, it's all, he cites all the right influences. It's a very funny moment where Maureen asks him about this this sort of urban myth that that spread around that he was Mick Ronson's son. And, And he actually sort of says, he kind of goes, yeah, kind of subsequently discovered what a genius Mick Ronson was and he talks about the string arrangements on, on Hunky Dory, and, and then he and then he sort of he, he says he probably doesn't mean to, but he goes, he sort of goes, Yeah, of course it would have been a lot cooler to have him as a dad than than, than, <laughs> than, than, than than the guy in Foreigner. Yeah. Because <laughs> Foreigner just isn't cool, is no, it? No, You no. know, it's not cool. There are probably people who thought he was the son of Mick Jones of the class, <laughs> you know. But I mean, look, I, I think yeah. I think he's put his name to a lot of good. I mean, Uptown Funk, you mentioned I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest records. Ever made. It was yeah. number one. 14 consecutive weeks at number one in America. That's amazing. Ad. And I mean, in its way, it's, it's kind a, of a decent bop. record. Yeah. It's not. I don't. I don't think it's that great. It's
1: quite fun. Yeah. It's
0: quite a fun record. And 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 actually, I've found. L- and
1: it did kick off a whole swathe of. Imitators in terms of just that
0: sound again now yeah. in the in yeah. yeah. The... I mean he is Mr. Mid-Atlantic, you know. <laughs> and there's no getting around that. You know, he's, he had that childhood where, you know, his parents were having parties in St. John's Wood. He moved to New York when he was a kid. He spent a lot of time in LA. You know, but it's it's actually I really did enjoy I, yeah. I enjoyed the it's just something quite fun about these Maureen these yeah, yeah. Peyton. Back of a tax No, I, I, I,
1: I like them. Uh, particularly because they're going around London. And I think if you know London a bit, you know sort of vaguely
0: I'm, where they are. For me, that's, that's, that's quite, quite entertaining. Entertaining. It's
1: fantastic so it's going around where I lived for so 15
0: great. years,
2: you know. Anyway. And he also
0: mentions Barbara. So we had Barbara Sharon in, obviously, about a month yeah, ago. Yeah. And Barbara was, was doing his press at that time. And maybe he still, still does, doing, his, yeah. does his press. And he keeps sort of saying, I think we need to get back to Barbara's offer because that's also in St John's <laughs> Wood." I mean, it's, it's very funny. And he's a Chelsea fan. Oh, shush, <laughs>
2: shush. Right. Well, shall I tell you about some of the stuff that's going into the? Would you library? like to do that? I Would think you, I'll do that. It's a Christmas special. It's a Christmas special. <laughs> Starting in June '68, Keith Olsen, New Musical Express. He goes down to Olympic Studios where the Rolling Stones are are recording what it becomes, Beggar's Banquet. Great album. Also, Jean Godard, whose marvelous star Anna Karina died just a few days yes, ago. Yes, Anna, Anna Karenina, Anna, did you no, say? No, Anna Karina. Anna Karina. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Anyway, he's there filming what is actually, I think, one of the worst God-odd films of the lot, One Plus One, subtitled It's pretty for the Devil. terrible. It's an absolutely dreadful movie. But it is great seeing stones in the studio recording Sympathy for the Devil. Anyway, so Keith's down there and he says... There was film director Jean-Luc Godard, who is the least noticeable person amongst the pulchritude of young ladies legging about the studio and the bright, long-haired young men. He was dressed in a sombre suit with an innocuous tie and has a small, pertinent, bespectacled face. Later on, he writes, I go home greatly chastened and fall asleep, which is where all good stories end. But no, at 4am there's a phone call from a a delighted Bill Wyman... Well, you missed it. The studio's gone up in flames. There's three fire engines and the ceiling's on fire. It's absolutely true. Olympic Studios, mm. mm. it, it, it was wildly overstated in the press. It was a very minor fire, mm. you know. But that, that that's so it's a, it's a very nice snapshot of the Stones at that particular time, um, and and you know, the, and the, 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 also the relationship. That Keith had with the Stones. He he was sort of Keith like. Keith Alton. Yeah, he yes,
0: was, Keith Richards definitely, definitely had a yeah, so it's somewhat <laughs> sort
2: of. A yeah, Keith, Keith Alton definitely had a sort of, you know, the, the, where they'd mock him, take the piss out of him, frankly, you know, but, you know, he, he gave as good as he got in the page of the enemy. We've taken the piss out of Keith. Absolutely. Altham. Here. Um, Here, yeah, in, this very, <laughs> in this, this very cupboard. 69, I mean, very briefly, Lionel Hampton interviewed by Max Jones. And Lionel Hampson had just done this show at Hammersmith Odeon which has really split the audience because he was doing like, almost like modern pop rather, oh. than sort of the, rather than the classics like Flying Home and all mm. that sort of stuff. And he says, I'm used to carrying a lot of rhythm. I'm a rhythm and blues player. That's what I am. Ooh. And that's kind of just an interesting line.
1: He sees himself as much in the R&B tradition as the jazz tradition. Yeah, mm. It's interesting, you sometimes get the sense that for American musicians coming to the UK, the UK audiences want the sort of vintage, yes. classic version of an act I rather th- than whatever they're doing at any given time. That's always been the case.
2: I mean, like, if soul musicians coming over and they're, they're playing their most recent stuff, then the audience are going, yeah, but mm. we want to hear your old hits. Mm. It, it It is that nostalgia of the English white audience for yeah. slightly older... Yeah. African-American music. We actually
0: have an audio interview with Lionel Hampson on Rock's we, Back Pages, yeah, which, is, yeah. which I think he's is quite he, He's a really interesting guy. Yeah. I, I've
2: seen him, I saw him at the Catholic Jazz Festival later and it just fantastic. Moving on, a year later, Roy Carr for the NME... Is, is Sly and the Family Stone play the Lyceum. Oof, what a gig! Uh, apparently the sound was terrible, the PA mm. was shit and so on and so forth. But he says, even before the rogers came on stage to set up the mountains of equipment, the capacity crowd was at fever pitch. As the tension increased, the all-important question of will he or won't he appear was constantly being asked by everyone, almost as a form of self-assurance. Well, he didn't. The impact was tremendous. Now, the context for that is, even by 70, Sly was missing shows all the time. Yeah. In America, there would be riots, because Sly would be backstage probably just mm. hoovering up cocaine and not being bothered to go on stage. Mm. Later on, Roy writes, Indeed, it only took one number to get the entire multitude on their feet. By the time they roared into the familiar intro of Milady, the old Lyceum was a whirling mass of bodies who all seemed to be singing dancing, sweating and leaping about the auditorium. Yes, about the auditorium in complete abandon, yes. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of apostrophes. Whole Laura whole of lot apostrophes. apostrophes. <laughs> Outrageously attired, bassist Larry Graham and drummer Greg Handfeet Erico set up a relentless barrage of... Personalized rhythms. I don't know what a personalized rhythm is. <laughs> and the brass team of <laughs> Cynthia Robinson on trumpet and tennis saxist Jerry Martini blew fierce, stabbing riffs and punctuations as the Stonekin Freddie on the guitar, the delectable Rose on electric piano, and Sly himself on organ recreated the sound that has almost revolutionized the sound of Black American music, mm. which is like you know, Roy gets it,
0: absolutely, you know. Well, even with in with bad oh. sound, they must have been oh. phenomenal. Then we, you know, most of us only really know the Woodstock, yeah. the footage. But
2: I, 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 I see, one thing he says in the piece is, is that the audience had probably just seen Woodstock and they were responding like oh. the Woodstock audience had, like oh, singing higher, yeah, higher. yeah, 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 um, yeah. Of course, of course, because um, this is September seventeenth, so it's almost exactly a year after after Woodstock. Moving on, Slade again into the Roy car, Noddy Holder being interviewed for The Enemy in 1971. Now, this is a really interesting piece, because this is when their very first hit was just happening. Yeah. Before this, they, under Chas Chandler's management, had become skinheads for a while. And he talks in this about how they couldn't get gigs because promoters would thought a load of skinheads would come and smash the place up and all sort of stuff. So being the skinheads really didn't work. They started growing their hair out again, and in fact, and their mutton shops, their mutton shops, and it became part of the initial glam rock explosion. But not great. I mean, you've met you've met him, haven't you, Barney? Yeah.
0: I have met Noddy a couple of times at Keith Alton's yes. gathering of yeah. of writers and musicians, and he is just absolutely delightful. Yeah, I know, he's I've, such, I've such a lovely person. I've heard this
2: from so many sources. So
0: funny and just
2: yeah, he's great. So anyway, he says it's bloody stupid. For just because our hair is now a few inches longer, we can get all the gigs we want. The only reason we cut our hair off in the first place was because we wanted to shock everybody. Well, arguably, he achieved that, just didn't get gigs. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then he says, Me and our mates are just a bunch of ravers. Black Sabbath are the same as us. Black country yobbos.
0: No. I should, <laughs> that's I should, I should have yeah.
2: done all of that in a black country accent, but I just can't go there. Black country, your Black country, your bows. Yeah, no, your 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 But it, it, it's, it's it's a very interesting interview. I mean, it's very early in their in their career as as a successful Yeah, I mean, I band. don't
0: remember. I remember seeing a picture of Slade with the braces and, yeah. the, and the you know the boffer boots yeah, yeah. And, and the skinhead thinking they just look. Terrifying, uh, but they, I also thought they were really terrifying when I first saw them on Top of the Pops as a, as, a, as a group that jumped on the glam yep. bandwagon. I mean, they were they were the Bother Boys of Glam, right down to the uh, just sort of really yobbish misspellings of their lyrics. Oh, I, I they did, were willfully sort of well, illiterate. Best spelling was
2: Prince before Prince. It's you very know, funny, uh, um,
0: but they were great. Those early they, Slade singles were, were pretty pretty interesting, especially when Jim Lee was playing. But, the, but, the, the violin. Uh, the, the just,
2: they had a real co- mad quality about them. And also they is, were mad. Yeah, and yeah, Noddy's yeah. voice was very particular, yeah. you know. Um, anyway, and, <laughs> and I suppose at this point, Jess is going to put in their Christmas single and, 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 and as an insert. Of course! Hurrah! <laughs> <of laughs> awesome. Here we go. Yeah.
0: Slade, Merry Xmas, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>
2: A couple of years later, Emerson Lake Palmer's Carl Palmer being been interviewed by Caroline Boucher, and this guy is just... Oh, I just feel like punching him. He's got no sort of <laughs> self, self-awareness whatsoever. He says, I went to see the Pink Floyd concert the other day, and the day I hit a gong stand and it catches fire, I shall stop playing. Nick Mason can't play drums.
3: You know, I mean, I, I, don't I don't care. I don't care. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and then says, it's just they, so self important. Yeah, well, exactly. They say I'm well, not
0: funky. ELP were nothing yeah. if not self important. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <laughs> they were, that was their very definite. The art. king. Defi- the It was the, de- <laughs> the defining aspect of self importance. Yeah. He says, they say I'm not funky. They say that in order to be funky, you have to be black. And that annoys me intensely. You know, it's just like. I'm
0: talking a funky black man.
2: Yeah, Swamp Dog. It's actually, it's, it, it's not really an interview. I mean, he, Joe McEwen, great American writer. The great writer. Joe
0: McEwen, Mr C. Uh, yeah,
2: this is an English magazine, Black Music, in 75. And he visits Swamp Dog. He doesn't really get enough out of Swamp to constitute an interview, but he gets the old thing. Like, before I created Swamp Dog... I would have said what I thought you wanted to hear. And, of course, I'd be lying. We'd both know it. I think I have a lot of things to say. If people like it, fine. If not, fuck them.
0: Great. Great, man. I mean... We love him. Swamp Dog is one of the the great eccentric mavericks of soul, isn't he? Because he did start out in a fairly orthodox form as little Jerry Williams, and then he made fairly conventional soul singles yeah. as Jerry Williams. And then he just created this sort of alter ego, Swamp Dog, yeah. and made these and mad records fuck, that are kind basically. of, the, they're like kind of almost like black rock yes. in places. Total destruction to your mind, for example. None of them did very well. But no.
2: But the thing is, he had had a very successful career as a writer and producer for other people. So he was actually filthy rich. And he, he, would you go, think he was actually wealthy. Oh yeah. I mean, no, he, I mean, He's Jeremy Kim describes his kind of lavish...
0: Does, yeah, does he?
2: Okay. Uh, uh, cause he? he had been... He, he he had really good publishing credits on a whole bunch of stuff
0: he was people. on he was on the contract at Atlantic yeah. as a, I think as a star for us and that, made some records absolutely. for Atlantic but but
2: he really made his money as a producer and as yeah. a summer yeah. Yeah. and he talked about going to visit the record companies who were failing to deliver his records yeah. and they would treat him like a, a failure he even describes himself as a failure yeah. he said then I'll get in my gold Rolls-Royce Eldorado and drive away you know it's so, <laughs> not kind <of> like on the road and you know you know well, I like
0: the idea of a Rolls-Royce, Rolls-Royce. I'm just <laughs> imagining <laughs> that now. It's a souped-up yeah, yeah. kind of... In the yeah, field, yeah. Man. <laughs> Front half Rolls-Royce, yeah. back half yeah. Rolls-Royce. Somebody designed
2: <laughs> that now. Yeah. Anyway, it, 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 it's, it's a big profile, basically, kind of retrospective profile, t- coming right up to 1975, the present day. Um, Barney, you and I have a lot of time... Joe
0: McKeon, a really important guy, actually, yeah. both as a writer yeah. and as a music executive, and he put together these fantastic three three volume anthologies called Lost Soul, volumes yeah. one, two and three. Music from the seventies right. that was released on like Epic and Columbia. It, they're just brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and he's he's one of the kind of I think Peter Granick would call him one of one of his kind of mentors, one yeah. of his like advisors, yeah. he draws a lot on Mr. C's yeah. taste. I, I mean, and... he, he,
2: it was not, it's not lengthy stuff, but some very good stuff in the Village Voice from the mid '70s. Mm. He wrote he great the, profiles. Yeah,
0: yeah. On a on a
2: skate. Oh, this, is, this is this is Dave Rimmer, who ends up writing the definitive book about Culture Club. Is on tour with them and doing a TV appearance in Germany. And this September '83, the Smash Hits, and George's relationship with John Moss, the, the drummer, wasn't public at this point. Now, clearly, Rimmer's aware of it, or aware that something going on there. George loved Hong Kong. The people were so sweet. It was weird going seventeen thousand miles and still getting mobbed when I got off the plane. It was seven thirty in the morning. I had no makeup on. I looked like a potato. He laughs, mm. and the paper still said I was heavily made up. I look like a pig. In fact, I look like two pigs. <laughs> no, you didn't, John replies softly.
1: It's really sweet. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's
2: Stephen Daly interviewing De La Soul, as Amy Lyndon corrected me. Daly, <laughs> yeah. De La Soul. Yeah, De La. Cat, for Blitz in 1991. And this is when De La Soul is Dead had just come out, which is the, yeah. their second album. A good couple of years after. The, the, three their, Feet High and Rising. Three Feet High and Rising. And as an album, it's a complete sort of rejection of Three Feet High and Rising. It's a very, very different mm. piece. Yeah, They've been having a tough time. They've gone on tour with El Colge and been kicked off the tour because of fights breaking out in the dressing room and things. Mm. And there's a reason for that, is that a lot of these young toughs going to hip-hop shows at that time looked at De La Soul and thought all this... Flowers, pans, stuff, daisy stuff. But the yeah, yeah. they're going to be easy, easy marks, and so they'd be going to the dressing room and threatening them, and the be- last would fight back and kick their asses. Punk little kids going around thinking that just because we got daisies in our video, we're soft. So they start trouble with us, and we kick their ass. That's true, guy. So, so I mean, the, it's quite a down interview. They, they are trying to kind of find their place back in the hip hop world after this enormous success of their first record. They've stayed together pretty much ever since, haven't they? They're still they're still doing stuff. Their, but Their Most recent album is actually just great. It's just a great album. So Yeah, yeah. Mm. But you know, it's a struggle. Back in those days, you could go to a party and just get on the mic, but now it's basically just work. Work and rules. It's a band really kind of, you know, going through that sort of difficult stretch that, you know, a, a lot of bands do. Yeah. Lastly, Simon Price interviewing pavement. It's a very funny interview. But this is kind of a good point that Stephen Markness made. He says eighties sounded and big. Distortion is the reverb of the nineties, the prevailing cliche. In ten years' time, people will go, Ugh, hear that. And it's it's a very good point that, that the prevailing sound of the 90s was the post-grunge distorted guitar in the same way as the prevailing sound of the 80s was the lexicon reverb and the SSL desk yeah. and
1: so on and so forth. Everything just it? drowning in mm. so, either uh, of uh, either. that's my lot. How about you, Jasper? I'm going to go on to not that much further, but 2001, mm-hmm. Björk. And this is a fabulous Björk interview with David Toop who was our guest quite recently yeah. in the wire in September 2001 and this is a really long it's like 5000 plus word piece and, and report on going to Iceland and it's a really really great piece yeah. i'd highly recommend taking the time to read it because Toop's writing is wonderful and it's and it's fascinating yep. Björk talks about recording her latest album which is Vespertine at the time fantastic record and they talk about Icelandic paganism and Folk music and spirituality and all sorts of stuff. She yeah, has a lovely stuff we bit. talk about. Yeah, absolutely. The, every day in the office, yes. <laughs> and she has a really lovely bit about when she was on tour with the Sugar Cubes, which mm-hmm. was the band that she was in in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There'd be evenings when we'd be in some stupid hotel in Texas and we'd all go to Bragi's room and he'd read to us his latest poems and it wouldn't even be pretentious or intellectual. It's a very basic thing, like listening to the new Aphex Twin album. It's down to earth.
0: Yeah, that earthy guy Richard James
1: I love that for two reasons one that it's very much that Icelandic sort of like she's just describing how it's different it's a different type of place to live and grow up and do things but also just the the Björkism of down, to her, Down to her twin. I think it's just, it's just a great combination.
2: Yeah, well, we, I think we all like Bjrka. I mean, you, you know, I can't say I love everything she's done,
1: but she's someone I admire for the way that she's single handedly done what she wants to do. Yes, and she, she's very intelligent. She comes across, yeah, there's just some really interesting stuff as well about technology because they're talking about how she's recorded the album in Pro Tools right. and, you know, how people kind of get all worked up about people using technology mm-hmm. for music and whatever. And, she says, Manhattan's a great idea, you know. Just to walk between the skyscrapers felt not different to walking in the valley or the mountains. The impression they have on you is pretty strong. A lot of presence. I think most technology, it's tools. What we do with them, whether it's cold or soulful, that's our choice. Yeah. And I think that's really, you know, she she's not hung up about mm-hmm. nature per se as being Icelandic mountains. Yeah. It's all about yeah. just witnessing yes. things and and, and being how you there. absorb and
0: them how you exactly, exactly yeah i, I think, think, as you run is probably my favorite Björk album yeah. i think it's just gorgeous and glorious yeah. like songs like pagan poetry might be my favorite Björk track i think what they what she does and with her collaborators on that electronically is is really out of this world. I think she's a thoroughly good thing. Yeah. She's just she's just a sort of force of nature and a wonderful singer. And I'm not sure I mean I've seen her live two or three times. She's Beautiful. just a sort of explosive presence, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Of explosive presence. (laughs) Oh, you're not gonna let off. (laughs)
1: don't Barney!
2: Second yellow card! I'm sorry. (laughs) That's a red Straight red. I'm gonna go. (laughs) You're gonna go.
1: (laughs) Jamie Cullum at the Royal Concert Hall. The 30-year-old exploding piano man grabbed the moment by the scruff of the neck as he combined fine musicianship with hyperactive showmanship. And he's playing at the Royal Concert Hall in Glasgow, David Sinclair reviewing it for The Times in 2010. Mm-hmm. And the sense you get from this review is that David Sinclair can kind of see Cullum's talent, but that it's sort of obscured by this big production show. Right. And, you know, jumping up on the piano and yeah, yeah. all this sort of stuff designed to, to be fun and pop and entertaining. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of fun. But when it ended with Cullum alone at the piano singing his theme from the movie Gran Torino, there was a glimpse of a performer with greater emotional depth than we've been allowed to see for much of the show. Interesting. We were listening, you were playing in the office... His Song Society album, which is he basically, he gets together with a couple of his band and they sit in a room... And they pick a pop song they've never played before from you know recent pop song and they learn to play it in an hour and they record it and put it on YouTube and it was never even designed as an album, it was yeah, just yeah. a series of YouTube videos. And it's now on Spotify. And actually that's my absolute favorite thing well, he's but, ever well, done. I, I've never been a fan of his and
2: suddenly this really, really good record was playing. And it's great. And it was enormously engaging and uh, you know, the, his own material is not good, I don't think. I don't... I think he's a poor writer. But when you're doing pop songs, in the way that jazz musicians always have by tradition, going right back to the 30s, yes, right up to Miles Davis, doing Time After Time and things like that, it really it, it worked. It worked. Mm, yeah. it was, and they're all
0: songs that... Because I mean, I was listening to you playing that as well. And they're all songs that most people would recognise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But done in, in a really interesting way. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, we liked it. I mean we were slightly surprised to be like we're, gobb- quite we're so still
0: gobs we are <laughs> we like our, our
2: jaws are slackly hanging down in front of the microphone <laughs> right now.
0: <laughs> Make my wish come true. All I want for Christmas is you
3: one, two, oh one. I don't want a lot for Christmas.
1: lastly I've got Stormzy <laughs> at oh, Stormzy the Academy wow. Leicester it's <laughs> our first Stormzy piece and we thought we urgently should rectify the fact that we didn't have any in the, yeah, in the yeah. library yeah. and this is a live review again in the Times Stephen Dalton and Stormzy puts on a great show as you would expect. He's got real presence. Mm. Stormzy commanded the packed room like a whirling typhoon of kinetic energy, his rapid-fire raps punctuated by self-deprecating patter and religious fervour. Athleticism, verbal dexterity and weapons-grade charm make for a pretty persuasive package. Mm. And I think that's true of Stormzy. I think that he manages to escape from the sort of hyper-masculinity of a lot of grime right. in a way that makes his music more interesting, while mm. still being he's still you know it's yeah. still very much grime and it's still very fierce and powerful. We played his most recent
2: album, which is a hit, which it's it's out already, this week, yeah, uh, and it's already kind of doing fantastic business. We were listening to it quietly in the office, uh, not really in the right, environment not really, for really us. the right place he's, to listen um, to what but, he's but but saying. But very and all little of that. sort of grabbed me in the way that, let's say, chunks of well, going back to the, uh, the early days of grime, Dizzy Rascal's Boy in the Corner, where. Great swathes of words and literally catch, catch, you know, I, I wasn't really
1: hearing much, but as I said, yeah. wrong,
2: wrong wrong environment to, to listen to. And I to think it.
1: actually, Stormzy in some ways is the next Dizzy Rascal, yeah. if you can say that. I mean, he's he he he's got that same sense of humour yeah. and wittiness about a lot of it that that not every no. artist does.
0: It's been a hell of a year for him, hasn't it? I mean, oh, he yeah. played Glastonbury, he wore that extraordinary, like, bulletproof vest. Union Jack yeah. vest thing, yeah. and, of course, got strongly behind Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> for all the good that did. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's a, he's a huge star. No, I, well. I, I, I can't...
1: And he's doing really good things and yeah. he's got a publishing imprint for books that would yeah. otherwise not get the attention they should, and he's been putting black students into Cambridge. Student no, in no, no,
2: he's a good man. He's a, a good guy. I think really. the other thing that's very interesting about him and about grime in general is as white pop and rock is becoming more and more middle class because the only people can afford to put bands together in a traditional way or, or do all that sort of process are people who are living on the bank of mum and dad, basically... The one area where people from genuinely deprived and difficult backgrounds, which is basically the the, the inner city Afro Caribbean, Afro Asian communities,
1: are really doing stuff, and it's because they can make records on their laptops. And that's you're spot on because this show it was it was him yeah. and a Ghana laptop. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. And I think it's you know the fact that he managed to mm. command the pack room, quote yeah. unquote, is you know
2: I mean, that's, that's a, a
1: testament to his. You
0: charm know, Grime and isn't
2: for people like. Well, certainly Barney and myself
0: speak um, for yourself. well i'm speaking i wake up to the sound of grime and i have my cornflakes
2: that's a lie and i'm speaking listening and, I, to... and i'm speaking for you <laughs> um, but i actually i really appreciate this i mean when i hear it i hear the sound of the london i live in and you know it's it most actually reflects the environment in which it's created which is what great rock and roll has always done to some extent, you know.
0: I, I agree, I do think um, it's... Well, it's a good way to, to end the music. episode because he has a new album out and I just wanted to mention that we have put together a playlist of our favourite tracks of the year
1: Merry Christmas Happy Holidays to
0: you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're welcome yeah we'll put the link on the site just briefly mentioning some of the, the highlights your highlights of the year you turned us on to Lizzo at the very beginning of the year yeah and I think so we've got two Lizzo tracks on there you, you couldn't not have them just tell us briefly about Lizzo is she, is she sort of your, your kind of breakthrough star yeah, of yeah I mean year? actually I started listening to her right at the end of last
1: year yeah. when the track Boys that, that yeah. came out that was sort of like but actually, not even the end, sort of like summer, summer, end, late summer 2018 was when I sort of first discovered Lizard. But then it sort of, she her international career sort of kicked into overdrive yep. this year. I mean, she came to play the absolutely packed out Kentish Town show that I was at. And within a month of that show, there was another London show announced for November that I couldn't go to because it sold out like yep. that. And that was a much bigger venue in Brixton. Right. And so she's just great. I really, really love her style and the way that she just carries herself yeah. and the, the message that she projects. I think she's just I mean I don't know if I'd mm. call her my breakout star of this year just because it's not quite but but in, in a way, yes, I think I think so. Yeah, well we, you know we all we all love her. I mean yeah. everybody so, that you play her music to is yeah. just like actually this is great. No matter what it's kind of terrific stuff into. music.
2: Yeah. She's she's a terrific singer but she can also rap really convincingly. She's got all of this stuff. She she's a bit there's an aspect of Missy Elliott about her, but hmm. with more musicality. She does um,
0: remind me of Missy, I have uh, to confess. Uh, uh,
2: and I'd say Missy Elliott was the last hip-hop artist that I actually had any particular interest in, you know. Mm. But, mm. but, no, Lizzo's great. I mean, again, we've mentioned this before, but I suspect probably somewhere on iPlayer you can still see her Glastonbury performance, which is pretty, pretty brilliant. <laughs>
0: Well, there's lots what of other what good what stuff on yeah. the playlist, including your beloved foals uh, <laughs>
1: Yeah, I went to see them a couple of times this year, which was yes, you
2: did. fabulous. I, you know, unfortunately, my breakout stuff was nothing, stuff none of you would have heard, which had been like someone doing something really interesting in a free improvised show in an or, arts or, cafe in Hither Green. I mean, that has been, for me, my new music has been
0: improvised music. Mm, mm. None mm. of that made it onto the playlist. Didn't that? No. No. It's no, probably not it. on Spotify. Probably not. No. Um, before we wish you all a very Merry Christmas, Jasper is going to just tell us something about Pantheon. Yeah, we've podcasts. got a little bit
1: of news. We're very happy to announce that we're joining the Pantheon Podcast Network, which is a group of podcasts. On music, they're all music podcasts. It includes rock and roll, archaeology. It includes Pamela Daybar's Pajama Party. There's the great
0: heavy metal writer Martin Popoff has, has a his podcast, podcast on there. So it's basically there. it's just yeah.
1: podcasts for music lovers of all yeah. kinds. And we're now part of that network, so you'll occasionally hear promotions for other shows on that network. And you know, hopefully, we'll have some some listeners of those shows come and listen to our podcast. So that should be should be fun, and it's it's, it's very much. A like minded set of podcasts, so do go and check it out, the Pantheon Podcast Network. So, yeah, that's a little
2: announcement Great. on our side. Great,
0: thanks, Jasper.
1: We're gonna go out
2: with a last clip from Mark Ronson where he talks about producing Amy. It's been a pretty interesting year all round. You know, we've staggered through it, and we'll see. Terrifying you. year. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs> we we the next will. Next decade. <clears> yeah, yeah.
0: So, from all of us here at Roxbeck Pages Towers, have yourselves a merry little Christmas and a fabulous 2020. Yeah,
3: indeed.
1: Happy Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Crimbo. H- Happy holidays. Thanks,
3: everyone. because she, the, the way that this amazing eye, eye makeup and so on, she kind of looks diva-like. She just knows what she wants and, mm. and it's really, it's actually kind of refreshing because in a studio, you know, you're, you're everyone's walking around and... Sort of eggshells a lot of the time when they're talking being all diplomatic because they're talking somebody says like hey i wrote this do you like it if you say no you're saying no you because you're basically someone saying these are my feelings and you're going no that's shit yeah. so a lot of the time you waste all this time like going like Oh, maybe it's good, maybe we can fix that. And you spend eight hours trying to fix something that you didn't like in the first place. Whereas Amy is just, like, just really brutally honest in the studio. I remember the first time I played her something that she didn't like. And I was like, what do you think of this? It was just like a little idea I had for, for the start of a song. And she goes, no, nah, I don't like it. And at first I was like, oh, like, that uh, hurts. Uh, but what about if I uh, change this? She was like, no, nah, I don't like it. And I was like, well, is it what, what part don't you like? She's like, I don't know, I just don't like it. And that was it, and it was over, and it was great. And, like, for two seconds, you had that little pang of, sure. like, whatever, but then you end up saving so much time and you just on to the next thing.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> I told you...
1: was Mark Ronson, conversation with Maureen Payton in 2007, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Happy holidays!